Before we go to the reading and preaching of God's Word, let us now go to the Lord again through the blood of Christ, by the Spirit that He's poured out, asking that Jesus would open up our minds and that He would speak to us. Let's pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Son that You sent into the world, that through Him we would have reconciliation between us and You, Triune God. We thank You for the Holy Spirit who has opened up our eyes that while we were yet sinners and mockers of Your grace, You have opened up our eyes to see Your grace and to receive Your Son by faith and have union and communion with You, O God. We pray, Lord, that You would please help us to see that in this text this morning, that for if any are apart from Your kingdom, that You would draw them near this morning through the Word, and that for those who have already been brought into Your kingdom by Your grace, that You would assure them of the salvation that is theirs in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others also who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? If you were to answer this question right now, what would you honestly say? And by what standard would you use to make a judgment? Would you say, well, I'm a good employee. 
a wonderful parent, and an upstanding citizen. Therefore, I am a good person. According to the world's standards, that may label you as a good person. And it might even cause someone, maybe even yourself, to believe that you deserve something because of how good you are. Maybe even deserving of God's love and mercy. But there is a problem with someone who thinks in a way like that. What we must do is not measure our goodness according to the world's standards, but we should measure, we must measure ourselves by God's holy standard, which is his righteous moral law, for we will be judged by him. And what does his word say about our own righteousness? Well, it says that none are righteous. Not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In fact, the only thing that we deserve is not God's mercy, but His wrath. Every single human being who has been or will be of ordinary generation does not deserve God's mercy and love, but His wrath, not His blessing. But here's the good news. This is the good news. That the Father sent His Son by the Spirit to die for the unrighteous. To die, to live, and to rise again for the ungodly. According to the triune God's loving kindness, He saves sinners, the very same sinners who mock His grace. How does He do this? He changes hearts. He changes minds. He gives eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of salvation that comes in Christ alone. And they believe, even the ungodly, who were dead in their sins and trespasses. And this is what our text shows us this morning. Our text shows us in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43, that it is only by the grace of God that a mocker of God's grace and become a recipient of that grace that he once mocked. Not because they're a good person, but because Jesus is the messianic mediator of mockers. He laid down his life for the ungodly so that they would enter into his kingdom by grace alone. Again, this is what we'll see in our text this morning. I'll divide the text into two portions. First being Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 39, where we'll see this messianic mediator mocked for sinners. He's mocked by sinners for the behalf of sinners. And then finally, we'll see in verses 40 through 43, that Jesus is the messianic mediator who reconciles sinners to God. First, let's look at the text at verse 32. Please look with me. The text says that two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Him, of course, being Christ. Who are these two other criminals who were being brought to be crucified along with Jesus? Well, we'll find more about them later on in our text. Let's look at the setting. Verse 33, it says, When they came to the place called the Skull, So they're going to be crucified on a place called the Skull, which is often also called Golgotha. 
in the other synoptic gospels. And Jesus here is being treated as a criminal. He's to be crucified along with these other two on Golgotha. Why? Why is he being counted among the transgressors here? He who knew no sin. Why? Well, isn't it obvious? What is the testimony of all of Scripture? What's even the testimony from Jesus' own mouth? Look at Luke 22, verse 37, or here along, please. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven 37 says, this is from Jesus, where I tell you that this, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. So he's being numbered with the transgressors. He's being treated as a criminal, and he says that it's in fulfillment of what has been written. Well, what's he talking about? Well, of course, he's referring to the Old Testament prophecies that were made about him and making, uh, being numbered with transgressors. What he's quoting here is from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And it speaks of this Messiah, the Son of Man, who would be numbered with the transgressors. Gressors. In Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus is saying, that which was written must be fulfilled in me. So why is he numbered with the transgressors? Yes, it's in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But what is it about? Why is he being numbered among the transgressors? Well, if we finish that verse, Isaiah 53, 12. It says that he was numbered with the transgressors and interceded for transgressors. This is why he was numbered with the transgressors, was to make intercession for them. And we see this is what Jesus is doing, even from the cross, interceding for sinners. Now this word, we may not use it a lot, the word interceding, but it's a very simple term. What it means is to intervene on behalf of someone else. To make a plea on behalf of another, to intervene. And in this case, what Jesus is doing is he's being numbered among the transgressors in order to intervene on their behalf before a holy and righteous God. And what does he say from the cross in making intercession for sinners? Look with me in verse 34. It says, But Jesus was saying to them, Father, of course, him being the eternal Son of God, and him crying out to his father on behalf of those who would become sons and daughters of God through him. He prays on their behalf saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they do not know what they do. This mediator, this messianic mediator is making intercession for the very people who are crucifying him. This is the mercy of God, is it not? That even those who were publicly mocking Him, the ones who were nailing Him to the cross, He prays for them and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in Him saying they know not what they do, what is He speaking about? He's saying that they're spiritually blind. They're dead in their transgressions and sins. They're spiritually deaf. And they don't understand what great sin that they are committing. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but in this prayer, have you ever thought, 
How did God answer this prayer directly? By our mediator at the cross. Did God answer Christ's prayer? Well, one commentator says that this prayer that was offered up by Jesus was not answered immediately. But, let me say this first. Not immediately, the commentator says, because the soldiers for whom he prayed went on with their uh, gruesome business of crucifying the Son of God. But later on, what does the text tell us? Even at the very side of the crucifixion, the centurion guard who was watching over all of this unrighteousness being done to the sinless Son of God, this centurion guard, after Christ's death, praises God. He praises God. He proclaims that Christ was innocent. Luke chapter 23, verse 47. And in the other synoptic gospels, he says that this man truly was the Son of God. So in that way, it was answered very shortly after. But also think of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What did Jesus say to the crowd? He said to the crowd, this man, speaking about Jesus, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he doesn't hold back punches. He says, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He says, you crucified him. And then it says in the text in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 41, it says, when they heard this message from Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, What shall we do? Let me know what was said afterwards. He called them to repentance and to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 41, it says that, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So was Christ's prayer answered? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only would we see this in the thousands who would come to conversion shortly after, after the 40 days of, after Jesus had risen from the dead and the 40 days of Him proclaiming victory over death and then ascending to the right hand of the Father, but that even at Pentecost, that word was going forth and thousands were being saved. But there was also, even before the centurion uh, servant, the centurion guard, there was a conversion that happened there even at the cross. We'll get to that in a second. So what else is going on here? We have the two soldiers, or excuse me, the two um, transgressors, one hanging on Christ's left, one on his right. Who else is there at this scene? Well, of course, it's those who nailed Jesus to the cross. We look at verse 34b, after Jesus makes intercession and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. It says, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Of course, this again was the soldiers. This was a common practice done by those who performed crucifixion, that the one being crucified, his garments would be divided among the soldiers. In this instance, with Jesus' garments, four soldiers each got a piece of Jesus' clothing, but for his tunic, which could not be torn into pieces, or else it would ruin the garment. They cast lots for it to decide who would receive this garment. 
Well, of course, what is happening here is a fulfillment of what was said in Psalm 22, verse 18, where it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, fulfillment of what was written long ago. And so since his garments are being divided, and his tunic is no longer on him, but was cast lots for and given to the winner, what does this mean about Jesus? Well, it means that he's not wearing anything on the cross. Jesus, when he was crucified, was naked on the cross. And this is significant, beloved. We think back to the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3, that when before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and not ashamed. But after they sinned against the holy and righteous God, they were full of shame. And so they ran away. Ever since Adam fell into sin, physical nakedness has been associated with and has become a symbol for moral guilt and shame before God. And this is what it's pointing to with Jesus. He on the cross is bearing our shame. Bearing our shame on the cross. Naked and exposed. Adam and Eve's shame and guilt were covered by God through the sacrifice of an animal for their shame. Which again points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who covers all our sin through faith in Him. Now what else is happening? These soldiers cast lots, but who else is involved here in this? In verse 35 it says, And the people stood by looking on. So yes, there's soldiers who are, of course, nailing Christ to the cross. They're taking His clothes. They're dividing it up. But there's also people who are just sitting on the sidelines, not objecting to what's going on. None of them say, Do you not know who this man is? He's innocent. What are you doing? This is a catastrophe. Stop it. No. The text in Luke says that they stood by looking on, not objecting, going with the crowd. And even in other Gospels, it speaks of them hurling blasphemy at Jesus. Then we have in the next part of verse 35, it says, even the rulers were sneering at him, at Jesus, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. But what they didn't understand is that the reason why he's being offered up on the cross in the first place is to save sinners, just as it was written. But yet they mock it. They mock him, thinking as though of him being crucified as a sign of weakness rather than him laying down his life for those who mocked him. Let's continue. It says in verses 36 through 37, the same ones who would divide his clothes also mocked him and giving him sour wine. Again, this is found in verse 36. This wine is a sharp wine, a sour wine. Some translations even say that it's like vinegar. Well, what's the significance of this? this he is the king of kings and lord of lords, right? And they're mocking him throughout this text of saying, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are the King of Kings, you could save yourself. And so even if giving this wine 
to the king of kings. They're mocking him. And it's in this way, because this kind of wine is a common drink of the poorer classes and soldiers. They did this to mock the king of the Jews by offering him a poor man's wine. Again, their mocking just continues. Even with the inscription that was written above his head in verse 38, it says that there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the reason why this was written here was because when someone would be crucified, they would have an inscription above their head that would read what crime they committed and what was the crime that the Lord of glory committed. He committed no sin. He committed no crime. The reason that they killed him is because he is the king of the Jews. And in God's providence, this was written for all to see. And it was written by order of Pontius Pilate that Jesus is the king of the Jews, that it be written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. We see that in John 20, verse 20. And it was through this that all would be able to see and behold Now we go to the other party that's there, the two criminals, one on Jesus' right and one on their left. I mentioned earlier that we would speak more about who these people are. So who are they? Well, the text does give us some insight here, but also the other synoptic gospels gives us other background on who these people are. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 says that these men were criminals. They were both robbers. They were Thieves. And if you look at these texts, Matthew 27 and 15, it says that both of these men were hurling blasphemies at Jesus. He can't escape it. Jesus can't. It's coming from the soldiers. It's coming from the people. It's coming from the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees who are looking on. And it's even coming from his right and his left. People hurling blasphemies at him and mocking him. Jesus. Listen to this from Matthew 27, 44. It says, And the robbers, again both, who had been crucified with him, with Jesus, were also insulting him with the same words. The same very words that the people were saying in the crowd. Oh, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? You saved others, why don't you save yourself? All this mocking that was coming, Jesus's way by the people. It was actually true what they said, but they did so again in mocking Jesus. The ruler said that he is the Christ of God, that he is God's chosen one, which is true. The soldier said that he is the king of the Jews, which is true. The criminals said that he is the Christ. All these things true, but said in a mocking way. The reason why I lay this out for us is to show us is that there is no innocent party in this crucifixion against Jesus. All are mocking. All are making a mockery of the grace of God that was written long ago that Christ would die for the ungodly if they mock him. But what we'll see in the next section here in verses 40 through 43 is that in the midst of a mocking, dying ungodly world God is gracious to save sinners and this is what we'll see here in one of those thieves 
something happens in verse 40. Look with me at verse 40. Well, first, let's go back to 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And remember what we just read from Matthew and Mark. Both of them are hurling similar things at one another. But at some point, while this other thief was on the cross, it seems that the Lord, either through what this man had heard beforehand, or maybe even from what he heard from the very cross that he was hung on, seeing the inscription that was written above Jesus' head, hearing the intercession that came out of Jesus' mouth, that the Holy Spirit used that very word that that man heard while hanging on a cross and converted him. Converted him. Because look what happens in verse 40. He says, But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? He says of himself, he says, we are justly condemned. We are two criminals. We are two robbers. And then he says of Jesus in verse 41, he's saying, we deserve to be here, but this man, this Jesus, we have done nothing wrong. Out of a recognition of these things, this once blasphemer, this once mocker, now has a fear of God, sees that he's justly condemned before this God, and then he looks at the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And in light of all these things, he makes a request to this innocent one. In verse 42, he says, Jesus, which remember, even in Jesus' name means God saves. For this is why Christ came, to save sinners. He says, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, in this request that this man makes, he's not saying to him, Jesus, can you take us down from the cross right now? Can you come now in your kingdom? What this man is doing is he is making an eschatological statement, an end time statement about Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Kings. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and even from Jesus' own mouth in Luke 21, verse 27, he references about the Son of Man coming in His glory on the clouds of heaven at His second coming when He is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and tongues might serve Him and that His kingdom would not be uh, destroyed or pass away. This is what these texts tell us about this Son of Man about Jesus Christ when He comes at His second coming. So essentially what this man, this once mocker, this once blasphemer, is saying to Jesus, is he's saying, Jesus, when you come at the end of the age as was foretold, foretold, when you come in your kingdom, Son of Man, remember me. Remember me. Save me. And what's Jesus' response? What is his loving, tender, compassionate response to this man who comes to Christ with a contrite spirit? He says to him, truly, I say to you. What Jesus is saying, what I am saying is true. Which he always says, what, what he always says is true. And we know that God never lies. But he is assuring this man, even from essentially his deathbed, his death cross, 
he says to him, Truly I say to you, not just at the end of the age, but today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. Again, Jesus will not only remember him at his second coming, but even today, after his death, this mocker, who now confesses faith in Christ, shall be with him in paradise. Now, where is paradise? I'm not speaking about a tropical beach destination as we often use the word for paradise. What do I mean? What does the text mean? When it speaks of paradise, it speaks of being in the blessed presence of God. We hear Paul talk about this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, when he says, I am hard-pressed from both directions. Speaking about his upcoming death, he says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And he says, but for the sake of you, I, need, I want to be here in order to build you up in the faith. So what Paul's desire is to go into paradise and be with his Savior there. He continues using this kind of language of paradise in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Even the book of Revelation speaks of paradise when it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So he's talking about God's blessed presence. He's telling this mocker who was bound for hell, You'll be with me in paradise because you trust in my intercession. That's what's happening. How can Christ make this intercession for someone who was once hurling blasphemies against him? One who has sinned before a holy and righteous God. Here's how. Because of who Christ is and what he does. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us to lay down His life as a ransom for many. This is what He came to do, to live, die, rise from the grave and on the third day, uh, rise again from the, on the, from the grave on the third day. And why does He do this? Again, He does this for our salvation, for sinners like you and me the great news of this is it doesn't matter whether you've trusted in Christ all your life or if you were to believe in this good news this very day. Christ's intercession, even someone on the brink of death, would justify them before a holy and righteous God. This is how good Christ's intercession is, the only means whereby someone can be reconciled to God, only way that someone can be pardoned and made righteous before God is through this mediator. Now, when you read this text, what this text should not cause you to do is to think that you have a license to wait and give a deathbed confession. That's not what this text is about. To not have you to prolong, to presume upon the mercy of God. But what this text should cause you to see is that God, even today, 
while it is still today, in the midst of a fallen, sinful world who would mock the grace of God and call the cross foolishness rather than seeing it as the power of God. God still today saves people like that. Gives them the new heart, new eyes, that they would see the kingdom of God and enter therein through the blood of Christ. The King of Kings who lays down His life for many. Because what ultimately makes me or you or anyone else a child of God is not because of your works, but it's because of Christ's intercession, Him intervening on your behalf before God. Where is your hope this morning? Is it in that mediator? Is it in this King of kings who was mocked even though He was the Christ, the Son of God? The one who could call upon a legion of angels to take Him off the cross, but did lay down His life willingly to ransom and make transgression for sinners. Is your hope in Him this morning like it was with this repentant thief, this repentant robber? Like Him, do you have a fear of God? Do you see your guilt before a holy and righteous God like this thief did? Like this thief did, do you see this innocent one who hung on the tree for sinners? His innocence, his sinlessness. And is it your desire that when he comes in his kingdom on the last day, that he would remember you? Truly I say to you, this is what you believe. Just as Jesus said to this thief, I say to you, truly I say to you, if you believe in him, you'll be with him forever. In his kingdom, in his presence. All by the grace of God. Are you a good person? That's what I started out this sermon with asking yourself. Are you a good person? If you were to say yes according to your own merits, then what you're doing essentially is you're mocking the grace of God and saying that Christ died for no purpose. But he did come to die, to lay down his life for the ungodly. Because as the word says, we're all ungodly. We've all sinned before this holy and righteous God. But if you believe in the one who makes intercession for sinners, then you have every spiritual blessing in him. You have justification. You have adoption. You have sanctification. You have future glorification. Not because of your merit, but because of Christ's. Romans 5, verses 6 through 9 says, For while we were still weak, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were mocking him, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. This is the only hope for sinners. And I hope that this is your hope this morning. Let's pray. Oh, great God. We again thank You for the intercession that is ours through Christ. 
We thank you that he bears our names on his chest, as it were, just like the high priest of old who would make intercession for the Old Testament people of Israel, that they pointed to Christ, the one who bears our name before you and makes us righteous before you. We thank you for him. And we ask now that for his sake that we would continue to lift him up and to praise you that even in the midst of this mocking world, you've given us eyes to see like this thief and you've caused us to enter into your kingdom all by grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.